This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You know, anybody who's ever worked in retail or customer service knows that there are times when you have to deal with a customer who is... Well, not having their best day, right? But that is nothing compared to this video that is now making the rounds. It's from Burnaby. It shows a woman just yelling uh, abuse at two employees at a shopper's drug mart. And she's yelling at them because they were speaking in their native language, not to her, but to each other. And she did not like that. Now, it brought up an interesting point because somebody obviously filmed that and, and put that on social media. And the person who did that said that he was afraid to intervene because he thought, because he was also, he said, of Asian descent, and he didn't want this woman to turn on him. So he was afraid to say something. Now, that's not unusual. Lots of people are afraid to say something when they see an incident unfolding in front of them, whether it's somebody being yelled at, whether it's, uh, we, and we've talked about this on the show before, uh, our producer Claire Allen one time saw an incident coming into work where she saw a man and his girlfriend kind of arguing and he and he had a hold of her on the arm and people were quite concerned as they were walking by and she didn't know what to do. So sometimes you freeze. So that's what we were going to ask you today for our hot question of the day. We want to know, like, would you intervene when you see somebody being like verbally abused like that, like what do you think you would do in a situation like that? If you saw that happening, do you think, yes, need to say something, need to stand up? Or do you say, no, I just freeze and I don't know what to do. And it happens time and time again. It's actually called the bystander effect as well. So what do you think you would do in that situation? Would you say something or do you just freeze and you're not sure what to do? Let us know what you think. And I'm sure you've thought about this. I think every one of us has thought about this at some point. Like, what would I do if I saw that happening in front of me? Go online to at CKNW or at SimiSara980 and cast your vote. You can also email me, Simi at CKNW.com. We're going to talk about this viral video that has surfaced of this kind of racist rant that happened in Metro Vancouver. It was at a shopper's drug mart in Burnaby. This was on Kingsway, and it got posted to social media on Monday evening. There was a Facebook user who asked not to be identified, uh, says that he doesn't know how the incident started, but that it appeared to have started with a dispute over the handling of a return or an exchange of the price of a product or or something like that. Now, if you want to watch the full video, you'll find it at globalnews.ca. It does run for about a minute and a half, but here's just a a brief excerpt of what is on it. Shut up. Speaking in Chinese is rude. Shut up. You're rude. Speak English in Canada. Rude as fuck. Shut up. You're rude. You are rude. Go somewhere else. Okay. You want a manager to talk to me, you bring your manager here. If you want to talk to me, you bring your manager here, you idiot, or go speak Chinese with your other staff and talk to me somewhere else. Get him somewhere else. Shut up and get out of here, you idiot. Ironic that she's calling them rude and then using that kind of language. Like, it's just, it's awful, right? And you think, and there was a child standing there too, and so people are quite... Uh, horrified by this, uh, rightfully so. There is no excuse for behaving like that in public towards someone, especially when there's a child there. So we were going to talk about this uh, in 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 terms of like 
how you feel. Like if you saw that happening in front of you, do you think you would say something? The person who recorded this, like that's the obvious question for them, right? Well, the Facebook user who recorded this and put this online said that he wanted to, but he was afraid because he was also of Asian descent and essentially was afraid this woman was going to turn on him if he said something or got involved in in any way. So I want to know from you today, if you think you would step in? Have you ever seen anything like that? Any kind of a situation where you felt compelled to say something? Or do you think if you saw that happening, would you just freeze? Hey, and that's totally understandable too, because that happens to a lot of people. So I'm going to open up the phone lines in just a moment on this. But first, I just want to point out that I have had a few people emailing me already. And the emails kind of go like this, that they don't like this woman's tirade, and they think it was unacceptable, and they don't want to justify it. But they also think that, you know, English should be spoken in the workplace and it was wrong for these employees to not be speaking English. And like, I'd like to say that I see your point because I often try to do that, right? Regardless of point of view, I try to see the other point. And I've been thinking about this and, and I don't, like, I'm sorry, I don't see your point. And, and I'm wondering why, why I felt that way. And I thought, you know what, I guess it's because I'm just so used to hearing other languages. I grew up hearing other languages at home. So it just doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. As long as I know, I can ask my question in English, get a response in English, the rest of it doesn't really bother me that much. And even if you want to hear English spoken, there is no excuse to be behaving the way the person does in this video. Like, just just know. You know, people think it's such a horrible thing. Oh, things are changing and I've got a bunch of emails that say that kind of thing. And I just want to say, when I hear stories like this, I think about my mother. My mother passed away years ago. Actually, next year it'll be 30 years ago. She was very young, in her early 40s. And times were different back in the 1980s, she used to be afraid to get out of the car if she was wearing uh, like a Punjabi suit or a sari, like if we were going to an event or, you know, a family party or something like that. She wouldn't get out of the car wearing that suit because she was afraid, because she didn't want people to see her wearing this. She was afraid somebody might say something. She, When she had a work party every year, they had a Christmas party. I used to say to her, why don't you wear one of your saris? You have so many beautiful ones. She didn't want to. She, didn't, she was afraid to do it, essentially, because she thought somebody would say something. And think about how different that is to how we are today, right? Like we think we celebrate all different cultures and clothing and whatever. And it's a beautiful thing when we do. And every time I see somebody kind of walking, wearing like a different kind, different types of clothing, I always think of her and I think, boy, she would have loved to have seen things the way they are today, but she was still so afraid. The world did not end. The world is a better place for it, that we are more understanding to each other. And so is this just, I think, another one of those things where in time we'll think this is not a big deal. You know, as long as I can get my question answered in English, I don't really care what language other people are speaking. But in this case, this woman's tirade is so beyond acceptable. I want to know, would you step in, do you think, if you saw something like that happening? What would you do? Now, you can give us a call, 604-280-9898. Uh, let's go to Alex, who's called in from Delta. Hi, Alex. Hi, Simi. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. What, what do you think you would do if you saw this? Uh, I would step in. I, would, I wouldn't step in right away, but once it got a little bit more verbal and aggressive, then I would step in. Um, okay. I got a kind of different one. It was an employee that was rude to kids. 
Um, they were exchange students. They were from another country. Mm-hmm. They knew the signs and everything like that. Buy two, get one for free and everything like that. The employee wouldn't listen to them for like three minutes, five minutes. He's like, no, get away from here. Go and check out the signs again. And it was a big lineup in there. I had to literally walk over to where the kids got the candy, kind of grabbed it and a little aggressively kind of slammed it on the counter and said, open your eyes and listen to the kids and open your ears. You're doing your job wrong. I walked away and some other people go, hey, congratulations, because he just wasn't listening. Right. So now we're going to be rude to tourists too? Like, you don't know if people are visiting this country or what. I know. That's the sad part, right? It is the sad part. I traveled for a long time out of the country and I've been to many different countries, but English is not a problem. If you could communicate with hand signals, uh, politeness, and communication in any way you can, you'll get what you need. Right. So, Alex, you wouldn't hesitate then to step in if you saw something like that happening? No, no. I've done it before. Okay. So, I'll do it again. And I hope you wouldn't have to, but thank you. Yeah, very, yeah. I know, thanks. I know. Okay, thanks for that, Alex. Appreciate that. Let's go to Doug now in Surrey. Hi, Doug. Hi, Cindy. Thanks for taking my call. What would you um, do? I have... Um, well, actually, what I did, this was about five, six years ago at the Starbucks at uh, Georgia and Granville, just across from you guys. Mm-hmm. It was a couple of um, probably mid-20s. I, I, I think they're Japanese students or tourists speaking Japanese. And I'm a 55-year-old white guy, and some guy walked up to them and started yelling at them to stop speaking non-English, and they should only speak English like the stuff that they are just, like what that last video was about. Yeah. And so I, I stood up and just looked him stri- square in the eye and very calmly said, I need you to stop doing that. And he said, no. And he started to go off in a rant. And I said, no, you need to stop doing that. And he kind of glared at me and left. The thing is, if you stand up to these bullies, because a bully is essentially a coward at the heart. If you stand up to them calm, stare in the eye, they back down. Right. I guess some and people, though, are afraid to do that, right? Because you're like, are they going to turn on me or what's going to happen? I think at heart, don't you think, Doug, most people want to do the right thing, but they freeze. Well, that, that's right. And I think the more stories that come out of, of like the previous call myself, if you do it, nothing happens to us. And if more people have confidence in doing that, these people tend to back down. All right. So do you think you would do that again? Absolutely. In a heartbeat. Okay, Doug, thank you very much for that. Appreciate that. Uh, 604-280-9898 if you would like to weigh in. We're getting lots of response on Twitter on this as well. People giving examples of uh, when they have seen something like this happening. And they say, yeah, they they do. I had a, a, t- a tweet from someone who said they had jumped out of a taxi to shield an unconscious person who was kind of being kicked while a crowd was cheering. And they felt they had to do something. And they said, I stand up. Anything else is complicit. And I think they're great. That's for some people, that is their reaction. They jump into action. They want to do something. And other people, I know, they sometimes we freeze. Uh, let's go to Kinley in Port Moody. Hi, Kinley. Hi, good morning. What did you want uh, to say? I just want to say that I, I'm an older guy. I was brought up in the UK. I lived in France for 15 years, so I speak totally fluent in both languages. And I was taught that basically if you're in a situation where there are other people very close to you, around you, who don't speak the language that you're speaking, you should try not to speak in a different language because people are inclined to think that you're talking about them. So even though I don't right. agree with what she did, she was totally offensive, very rude, 
and I, I, I have, I would, ste- I would have stepped in and said something. Right. So I think that was totally unacceptable. But I can see the point of view of people who say that you should try and speak in the language of the people who are with you, right. so they can understand. So I could, un- I, I might have said, "Excuse me, you know, could you speak uh, in English?" Or you know, I don't know what you're saying. But I certainly would not have reacted right. the way she did. That was. Especially with a small child. Yes, yes. Above all. Well, Kayla, I think that's very fair. Thank you for that. I appreciate the comment. Uh, I think that's also maybe a bit of a workplace issue. You know, if you're a manager, if you say, listen, I understand that you're going to want to speak your language, but if there are customers around, I'm going to ask you not to. You can do it if there's no customers around. Uh, But perhaps, I don't know, do workplaces do that kind of stuff? But the question is, like, would you say something if you saw this happening in a public place? Let me go to Gail, who's called in from Cloverdale. Hi, Gail. Hi, Sammy. This is Gail from Cloverdale. I know you well. I knew your mother well. Oh. She was an incredible asset oh. to the Adoptive Families Association. Oh, you, oh, through her work. She worked at Canada Immigration. I know. Oh. She was our liaison. Oh, Gail, anyway, thank you. Anyway, first, I'd like to say that. Thank Think you. about her often because of that. Secondly, I'd like to say I'd stand up in a nanosecond, nanosecond for anybody. I am the mother of several internationally adopted children. Uh, some of my girls are your, were your friends growing up at Tweedsmere. Oh. So I would stand up immediately. And thirdly, I'd like to say when my youngest son, who was adopted from Haiti, started his job at McDonald's in Cloverdale, his first, second shift, the fries the customer got were cold. Right. The customer came back through the fries, through the Ooh. fries on my son. The manager immediately comes out and apologizes to the customer for the cold fries and says to my son, get him some hot ones. That manager is no longer there. Mind you, that was 10 years ago. Right. But my son was so humiliated, he didn't even tell me about it for, a long, for quite a while. Oh. So, but that, what I stand up, I, I don't know if anyone in the restaurant or anyone else stood up that day. If I ever heard what was happening, I would immediately step step up. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Gail, thank you so much for your call. Listen, you made my day. Okay. Oh, thank you. Cindy. <laughs> okay, you have a great you. day. You Bye-bye. too. Bye-bye. Uh, listen, keep those calls and comments coming. I'm going to direct people to go to our buzz line on this as well, because I think a lot of people have things to say on this. And I, I really do enjoy the thoughtful comments on this. So let's have that discussion. Go to our buzz line, 604-331-2899. Do you live near a busy road? Listen, you're not alone if you do. Almost one-third of all Canadians actually live within 250 metres of a busy road. You may not think much about that, but maybe you should. It's probably impacting your health in ways that you may not notice yet. So there's this new study, you've been hearing about it in the news, it's out today, that took a look at traffic pollution and the impact it has. And what's fascinating about this study is that just a few adjustments, just a few little adjustments could make the whole situation a lot better for all of us. Let's find out more now from one of the authors of the study. That is Greg Evans, a professor of chemical engineering and applied chemistry at the University of Toronto. Well, Greg, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about your research. First of all, tell us what it is that you looked into. What we looked into is how Canadians are being exposed to traffic pollution. We did a study back in 2011 that showed that up to a third of Canadians live within 250 metres of a major roadway, and that means that they are potentially being exposed to the emissions from vehicles. 
So what we want to do is find out what that means. What we did is we set up monitoring stations with our government partners uh, right beside major roadways and at locations where there was very little traffic. And we compared the levels of a wide range of air pollutants and found out, sure enough, that beside the major roadways, the levels of many of these pollutants were a lot higher due to the vehicles on those roadways. And when you say those vehicles, which kinds of vehicles? Is it older, newer? What, what do we need to be worried about here? Well, that's really uh, one of the interesting findings for us. So when we started the study, we had the idea that uh, the busier the road, the more vehicles, the higher the emissions, the higher the air pollution would be. And what we found is it's really a small fraction of the vehicles that are causing a lot of the problem. In particular, what we found is it's the highly pollutant diesel trucks that are causing a lot of the pollution level. Let me be clear that there's lots of trucks that have proper emission treatment systems on them, are well-maintained, that are not highly pollutant, but there is a small fraction that has either they're older um, or they've had their emission treatment system tampered with, and those we found were the real culprits. So you're saying that's actually the problem? Like if we addressed those particular types of vehicles, would that help the situation? That's right. I think that's the, the real opportunity is that if we can target a small number of vehicles, it can make a real difference. And let me give you an example of how we found that. So what we did is we monitored beside Highway 401 here in Toronto, and the busiest stretch of highway in North America, 400,000 vehicles a day going by it, and a fair number of those are trucks. We also monitored Clark Drive in Vancouver, which has about 10 times less traffic, way fewer trucks, but about the same percentage of trucks. And what we found is that the air pollution was very similar at both places. So that told us that it's not the total traffic. It's not even the total trucks. It's the proportion of trucks on the road that really makes a difference, particularly if you're living beside one of those roads. I was just thinking that, like Clark Drive in Vancouver, there's a lot of people who live right off that road. That's right. And that is a road that, because it's close to the port, there's a lot of heavy trucks doing important work. They're moving stuff from... Uh, from the port, but because there's a high percentage of them, uh, we see the pollution. And, and, and the really dramatic thing is, um, for Clark Drive, but also for the 401, is on Sundays, um, the number of trucks drops way down, but the traffic stays about the same, the total number of vehicles. And what we saw is the air gets a lot cleaner. Wow. Okay. And I'm also curious here, Greg, that, you know, we've been talking about emissions and trying to do something about emissions for 30 years plus now. Why Why are we not able to fix this problem? Because this does seem like something we can tackle. And, and we are fixing the problem. So as a country, I think there's a lot we can be proud of. Uh, the air quality in many places across Canada has improved. And that's partly because of the regulations that we've put in or things like a stacks or emissions from um, industry. But what's happened is while that's changed, our, our cities have become busier. So the situation has changed. We used to worry about smog days blanketed in a city, and now we're more worried about the much more localized traffic-related air pollution. And what that means is that the level of air pollution is no longer similar across the city. It varies a lot in different places in the city, based on the amount of traffic activity. So it's really that, that, that we have made progress, but the emissions have changed. 
So what's it going to take then for us to take the next step where we really can make a difference? Well, I think the uh, one of the joys of this study is it involved three levels of government. It involved uh, regional in terms of Metro Vancouver, it involved provincial in terms of the Ontario Ministry uh, of the Environment, and federal level in terms of Environment and Climate Change Canada. And it was that partnership that allowed us to implement the study, but it's also going to be those types of partnerships that can really make a difference. So there are questions at municipal levels in terms of where the trucks go in cities and where facilities like schools and daycares get built. There's questions at the provincial level in terms of monitoring the emissions from the highly polluting vehicles and enforcing them and getting those off the road. And then there's questions at the federal level and issues such as how do we improve and enforce the emission technologies? How do we change the uh, composition of our fuels, for example? And these link in both to health and to climate. So it's really an opportunity to get three levels of government working together on something they all seem to agree on. Right. So where do we start then? Is it easiest to tackle the truck situation? The truck situation, I think, is, is the low-hanging fruit uh, in that there's a small portion of vehicles that could be targeted and could make a real difference. But there's things that uh, individuals can do as well. Um, certainly, um, you know, when we use active transportation, we bike, we um, walk, we use transit, that reduces the emissions as well. Uh, we can buy vehicles that really meet the size that we need. There's a lot of Canadians who seem to be buying bigger and bigger cars, pickup trucks and SUVs, and that's creating a problem as well. So you don't need to get a vehicle as bigger than you need. Uh, we can well maintain our vehicles, and also if somebody is working with a, uh, you know, as a truck driver or working with a trucking organization, they can make sure that their vehicle is not one of the highly emitting ones as well. Right. So it sounds like there's something that everybody can actually do about this. That's right. It's a win-win. So we, it's a place where we can improve both for health and for climate as well. Smaller vehicles, fewer emissions. The uh, emissions from the diesel vehicles includes what we call black carbon, which is a soot, and that's a strong climate warming agent in, in addition to being a health concern. How would people know, though, Greg, that this is impacting them, that they are feeling the effects of this? That's the problem. Air pollutant is, they're, they're invisible most of the time, so if we can't see them, we don't worry about them. And the effects are cumulative over a long period of time, so it's very hard for somebody, unless they're particularly vulnerable, they're asthmatic, or they have a lung condition, then they know. But for most of us, it just builds up over time, and it leads to uh, these, these chronic disease outcomes. So it's very hard for us to know if we don't have ways to measure it. Right, but are you fairly are you fairly optimistic that this is being dealt with? I, I think it's an opportunity. Um, we now have more information. Um, Am I optimistic that we're going to resolve this completely? I think it's going to take some time, but at least this opens the door. It creates the awareness. But frankly, it's going to require a lot of public support as well. Uh, simple things like when we do the freight, uh, we need to have things delivered to our stores. We need groceries. We need things to get into the city. At the moment, there's uh, restrictions in terms of when trucks can drive, often restricting them to the daytime. So just people worried about the noise at night. It would make much more sense for that to come in at night uh, when children aren't in the schools, aren't in the playgrounds, uh, but that would cause some inconvenience in that we would have somewhat more noise at night. Right, so there's going to be a trade-off somewhere for us to fix this problem. There always is a trade-off. 
That is so true. But I think it's yeah, understanding the priorities. Right. All right, Greg, thank you so much for your time on this. I appreciate the interest. Thank you so much for calling. It's Greg Evans, Professor of Chemical Engineering and Applied Chemistry at the University of Toronto, talking about uh, this pollution that we get on our roads because of traffic, but mainly because of diesel trucks. Was that not so interesting? Is that on Clark Drive, there's just as much pollution as the 401 in, in Greater Toronto, even though... There is way less traffic, and it's because of the concentration of trucks that are driving that road. Are you a napper? Like, what about that moment in your workday? You know when it is where you just want to put your head down on your desk and close your eyes for a few minutes. Maybe you actually do that. Well, your desk is pretty uncomfortable, though, isn't it? Wouldn't you rather lie down somewhere and have a quick nap to recharge and then get back to work with more energy and enthusiasm? Well, if that appeals to you, then our next guest has just the thing. Too bad, though, it is in Toronto right now. Ms. Sabine Rahman joins us, the founder of Nap It Up in Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So what is Nap It Up? So napping up is a napping studio. Uh, we have 13 beds uh, separated by a curtain. So it's uh, usually, I mean, uh, my potential uh, guests would be, uh, you know, corporate workers who are working long hours, long, uh, like, uh, you know, eight, nine hours a day or even 10 hours. So around the area, I'm located at Young and Eglinton uh, area. Uh, so Around the area, there are like lots of uh, businesses, like lawyers, doctors, um, dentists, architects, uh, tech department, you know, industry, and right. lots of them. So my idea was that when people are, you know, uh, going for lunch, they can come and take a nap and close their eyes even for uh, 25 minutes and go back, refreshed, back to work and actually be able to focus. <laughs> and even <laughs> even when they go home, they're not cranky because they had that rest. Okay, is so this no, did this yes. did, was this something that was happening to you? Like how did you come up with this idea? Yes, yes. So it did happen to me. That's exactly how it happened because I used to work uh, you know, in a bank and I used to work nine hours a day, sometimes ten hours a day. And I remember one time I was sitting in my lunch room and I was just putting my head down on the dining room, uh dining table and uh, while I was just trying to just even close my eyes for 15 minutes, I see somebody just coming in, just opening the door, and I wake up again. And he he comes in shouting the same thing, that, oh, my God, I'm so tired. I wish I could take a nap. And then I'm um, just like, yeah. And then I was just like a bit annoyed, so I just go back again. And then someone else comes in saying the exact same thing. Oh, my God, I'm dying. I'm so tired. I wish I could take a nap. <laughs> so that moment, that's really exactly that moment. I just woke up. I'm like, hold on a second. Would you pay for something like this if there was a napping place would you pay for it and at that time because we were so tired and we were running off three four cups of coffee uh, all every single one of us were like yeah yeah of course we would we would pay anything and i mean they wouldn't but at that moment that was it (laughs) we felt like it at that moment right yeah yeah we just wanted to actually just pay anything to just get even like 15 minutes nap because we were working on computers. So it hurts your eyes if you're staring at it for that long, like for nine hours a day. Right. But okay. So then how much do you charge? Like what does somebody get if they come to your napping studio? 
Yeah, so it's ten dollars for twenty five minutes, twenty dollars for fifty five minutes, and uh, um, thirty dollars for eighty five minutes at the moment. But anybody is welcome to even stay longer, uh, and then we will work around that price. If somebody is regular, we want to look into group discount and stuff like that as well. So you you think people are gonna come and do this in the middle of the day? You've got I saw the picture. You've got like thirteen beds all there laid out for people. Are people doing this? Yes. <laughs> Yes, they have actually. Not a lot yet. Uh, as uh, you can tell that it's a brand new idea and uh, people need to actually get used to it. However, yes, people have come even today. Uh, people were in there and you would be surprised. I was expecting 25 minutes, but whoever came until today, they actually all slept for an hour. Whoa, really? Okay. Yes, so do you yes think, every single one of them. Do you think, Mezabine, that sometimes we have like a napping shame? Yes, yes, that we do. We all like I did. I did. My coworkers did. It's like if you're napping, then you're lazy. Why are you doing that? Like, why can't you fight it? But uh, it's it's so sad, in my opinion, because we are not ashamed to have four or five of co- four or five cups of coffee. We are like we call ourselves coffee addicts. We're like, oh, we cannot run without coffee. But we're harming our body like that. And but that we're not ashamed of. But then we're ashamed to actually do it properly and take a nap. So what do you get then to pay the price to come in and have that ten dollars? So what do I get for that? So for $10, you get regular bed. Uh, it's a narrow twin bed. And we have uh, sheets, like, you know, one at the top, one at the bottom, one to put on you, and then obviously one on the bed and pillow, uh, actual bed and pillow. And we change a sheet every single time. And there is also premium bed uh, that comes with uh, water and eye mask. And every single, all the 13 beds have locker, like a lock, like where you can put all your valuables right. and belongings. And, uh, you know, uh, with your key and then put the key under your pillow or in your pocket, however you want it. Okay, um, so I take it that's a quiet room, right? Like everybody has to be quiet yes, coming and going in the room? Yes, yes we have to have the uh, phone on silence. In the beginning, we were thinking that not to have, not to allow the phone uh, inside the studio. But then, then I thought that all these people who are coming, they're corporate people. They may want to keep their phone on them if they have a you know, important meeting or something. But then the phone has to be on silence. And we have white noise machine and we have air purifier and diffuser, lavender diffuser that oh. actually helps you sleep. This, yeah. This sounds lovely, actually. I'm, I think this sounds really good. So is it, you think you're onto something here? Yes, I hope so. I really, uh, I believe so. That's why obviously I am, uh, I opened the studio um, and uh, I request a lot of people because I do, I, I nobody personally has told me anything negative uh, or anything. However, on social media, like, you know, on their articles, I have seen that people asking questions that, oh, is it going to be private? What if it's there lots of noise? And why would I pay you? That's another question that I, I hear a lot, that why would I pay you? Why would I pay you to come and take a nap when I can do, uh, you know, go home and sleep? Well, but my question to these people are like, do you really, do you really have time to go home and take a nap? Because I have tried that and I do not even have children yet. But when I come home, I get busy with so many other things like cooking, cleaning, this and that. Yeah. and. I just, I just never have time and I just become cranky and then my, my <laughs> husband is cranky with me and I'm cranky with him. That's how it goes. <laughs> well, we'll see if, if you're onto something. I'd love to check back and find out what happens. But Mizabine, thank you so much for your time. Yeah.
Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's Mesabine Rahman, the founder of Nap Me Up in Toronto. In the last couple of days, we've been hearing about dispensaries being raided in the city of Vancouver, uh, and mainly because they are still kind of operating, despite the fact that not all of them are legal. Some of them are in the process of being legalized and moving towards that, but they are still being raided. And what happens is uh, police go in, they take all of the stock, they empty the place out, but no arrests really happen as a result. And we've been hearing today that one of the dispensaries involved is that belonging to Dana Larson. So he joins us now uh, to talk more about this, the founder of the Vancouver Dispensary Society. Dana, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me. What's going on? Well, uh, there's some VPD in the community safety unit down here at 1182 Thurlow. And the VPD, I think, are just here to like keep the peace while the community safety unit with that Orwellian name uh, does their job of seizing all the cannabis and threatening us with uh, future arrests and other problems if we continue to provide cannabis products to our community. So what kind of products? Like, was it cannabis? Was it also edibles? Like, what were you selling? Yeah, all, all, all the, everything, uh, uh, cannabis buds, smokable products, edible products, suppositories, the whole range of cannabis uh, products uh, that people use. Uh, and, you know, we're in the process. We, we've got a, 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 we're in compliance with Vancouver bylaws. Uh, we, you know, we underst- our understanding was that if you were in compliance with the city bylaws, uh, you would have time to transition into the legal system, but we're certainly not the first place that is being raided despite uh, following the rules in Vancouver and trying to comply. Right. So how far along in the process are you? Uh, it's it's a long and slow process. How, how long we are in the process? We've got a development permit and we're working towards getting fully licensed, although I will say that the legal system is is very poor, and if we if we had transitioned, we would lose the vast majority of our clients because the legal system uh, has a lot of problems with pricing, quality, access of products. There's a reason that people choose to go to the stores that are outside the legal system, and I expect that most of our members, if we didn't reopen, most of our members would not go shopping at the few legal shops in the city. They would return to the rest of the black market right. and get their cannabis in another way. Right, but just to be clear then, you are trying to get the legal permit it's like you are going through that process. We're, with, we're in the we were in the process, the pro- like many other shops, of trying to get the legal permit from the province and, and, and work through that. It's, it's a very slow process, not through our fault. Okay, and so what's going to happen now? Like they've taken all the stock, right? They're taking all the stock. Uh, we've got our lawyer here. There's a crowd outside protesting, and I expect that. Uh, I mean, our intention is to try to reopen. We'll see what happens and how that how that goes. It's still. A bit early to say, but uh, you know, I'm not one to go down without a fight. Are you at all concerned, though, Dana, that by doing this and by having these interactions now with police, that that might have somehow impact your legal license? It might, yeah, for sure. But I want to do the right thing by our members. They rely on us for access. Uh, there's a reason they come here. My priority, although I want to comply and I'd love to be part of the legal system, my priority is serving the members, the patients, the medical users, and others who need access to cannabis today. They can't wait six months or a year or more. Uh, or probably longer for the legal system to sort itself out. They need cannabis now, and I'm going to continue to try to provide it to them. Okay, and why do you think the black market then, Dana, is still so prevalent? Well, because there's a lot of flaws in the legal system, really, because how they approached it. You know, they haven't licensed enough growers and producers. They're focusing on enforcement and attacking people. Uh, you know, it's really shameful that we're in a province with a massive overdose death crisis caused by prohibition. And our, our BCNDP government is more focused in spending more money on raids and attacking a safe cannabis supply than they are in actually decriminalizing and creating a safe drug supply for all users. And that right. includes cannabis, but goes beyond that. But they've still got this prohibitionist 
uh, punishment mentality, which is really something we need to put aside uh, for the sake of our communities, for health, and to save a lot of lives. What would you say then, Dana, though, to people who go, well, listen, like it's going to be legalized. We're, it is legalized. We're working our way through this process. Why not just do this straight up now? I, I think that in the long run, I think maybe it'll be good to have a fully legal system. But the reality is that this month, next month, probably for the next couple of years, the legal system is not there yet. And people need cannabis access now. They, they can't wait a long time. There's a lot of people who are using cannabis medicinally. Some of them may not even be alive in a couple of years. Uh, and so, you know, I, I understand that they, they, the, the focus of the BC government should be on creating a better system that's more accessible with better cannabis at lower prices. They should be working at the uh, federal government and pushing them to make a better system. Instead, they're and, and instead they're they're just focusing on punishment, prohibition, and shutting people down. And I don't think it's a good good use of resources. I don't think it's going to be successful. And ultimately, it's just going to strengthen the black market. Uh, more. Okay, so what happens next for you now and for the dispensary? Well, we're going to probably have a talk with the people here and see what happens. Uh, my intention is to try to reopen as soon as possible, but we'll see if that if that's available and what kind of situation is. People are coming uh, you know, all the time, knocking on the door, wondering what's going on, hoping to access cannabis. Uh, so, but we're going to continue to fight. I'm not giving up. And to me, this is really, it's about cannabis, but it's about the broader issue of the whole war on drugs. You know, this dispensary, we, we fund a project to do safe uh, access to drug analysis in our community. So you can bring in any street drug and we'll analyze it for you and, and tell it what it is. The, the, the province can't afford to run programs like that, but they can afford to send in cops and authorities to raid dispensaries. This is a backwards set of priorities. Uh, Dana, thank you very much for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. Take That's care. Dana Larson, founder of the Vancouver Dispensary Society. There is undoubtedly a lot of concern about there about the potential for a bus strike this Friday. That impacts a whole lot of people. So how did we get there? We know that negotiations are back on this morning. The two sides were once again meeting starting at 10. Let's talk more about what we've learned about how those negotiations are going. Joining us now is Global News senior reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Simi, and the good news is that the two sides are still talking, so as long as they're at the bargaining table, face-to-face talking, there are hopes that a settlement could be reached, maybe even at the 11th hour on Thursday night, but the fact that they are still there, they are meeting in Surrey, still talking, that's good. But the strike deadline is looming, and that takes effect at 12.01 a.m. on Friday. Now, should there be no deal reached in these negotiations happening today as well as tomorrow, Uh, then there will be some job action. But the good news, too, is that there will not be a full-scale walkout come, you know, 12.01 a.m. on Friday. But there will be some sort of job action, according to the union, which is Unifor. But what type of job action right now they are not telling us, because uh, I guess, and apparently, they are still deciding on what that could be, Simi. Uh, It could be a whole range of things. It could be a ban on overtime or anything. We don't know right now. But uh, the union says they will try and notify the public ahead of time so they can make arrangements in terms of their commute for Friday morning. Uh, We have heard from SkyTrain, pardon me, from Transit Police, that the SkyTrain could obviously be very busy on Friday morning, and that's a given, I think, right? If the buses aren't running, perhaps um, SkyTrain could be jam-packed. So the Transit Police are saying, you know, make plans now to try and leave a little earlier, maybe, you know, find another form of transit, perhaps, but hopefully the union will be able to tell us well in advance, maybe today or tomorrow, what their plans are if 
no deal is reached in negotiations. However, in the meantime, uh, going into talks this morning, I caught up with the union spokesperson, Gavin McGarrigal, and I asked him, you know, how are things looking right now? And he said that the two sides are quite a ways apart right now. So that's not good. And here's more of what he had to say, Simi. We've certainly worked to resolve a number of issues, and every session we meet, we, we work to narrow the issues. Uh, but what we saw on Monday when we walked away from the table was is that in terms of the major economic portions uh, of the package, in terms of the benefits, and in terms of the working conditions, what we were seeing was small tweaks uh, instead of the system change that we need. We saw contract language relating to working conditions that uh, you know had, had loopholes in it big enough to drive a bus through, uh, pun intended. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know we'll keep working to narrow those issues. We know that the company knows exactly what our concerns are. We know the company knows exactly where we want to land on this. And so really it's a question of them. Do they have the mandate to resolve a fair deal for our members? Because if not, our members are absolutely determined to take strike action. So it sounds like you're still quite a ways apart. Yes, I would say we're quite a ways apart right now, but um, uh, deadlines are, are good things for focusing everyone's mind. And of course, I think we're all focused on the impact uh, on the public as well. So we know a lot of people rely on the system. I think both sides uh, really want to avoid a disruption, uh, and we're hoping that they come to the table so that we can narrow the issues. If there's a will there, we can close this thing quickly. If there's not a will there, then it could fall apart quickly as well. All right, Janet, I guess what worries me when I hear that, though, is you think, well, has there not been a will up until now? Because this has gotten awfully close to the end here. Uh, they have been negotiating for months now, Simi. So, you know, to leave it to the 11th hour like this, and that's yeah. exactly where we are right now, you know, I mean, you, you say, you know, this is good, but this is bad. This is good. This is bad. I think we're just going to have to wait. And, you know, they are under the gun right now uh, with the strike deadline looming. We're just going to have to wait tight and see, see, first of all, how today goes and then see how tomorrow goes, and hopefully they can get something done. But, yeah, he's not sounding that optimistic if I'm reading between the lines there. I know. And, you know, the uncertainty, I think, is what uh, gets to a lot of people right now is, okay, if there's going to be a strike, then the next step for a lot of people is, how am I going to get to work? I need to know. So they're kind of leaving the initial strike plans uh, kind of in the dark for people as well. They are, but as I said, they are going to share with the media, with the public, what their plans are come 12.01 Friday. Uh, they say they hope to minimize the impact to the traveling public, maximize the impact to the company. So what exactly that means, I don't know. Ah. Hopefully they will be sharing that with us soon. Um, we haven't said either the key issues in the dispute, right. wages, benefits, working conditions. Gavin was telling us, Mr. McGarrigal was telling us that some drivers don't even get a break in their yeah. shift semi, they are just run right off their feet. Um, I have reached out to the Coast Mountain Bus Company and a couple of emails to their president and general manager, Mike McDaniel. He has not got back to me. I don't think that's surprising. Uh, you know, sometimes they just like to hunker down and not talk to the media yeah. and, or negotiate in the media sometimes, you know, so that's understandable that he's not talking. Um, what's interesting, too, the company did say earlier that they had hired a 1,000 new drivers in recent times. But the union says that may be, but we're also losing people with retirements, people on leave, that sort of thing. And the union says it's really a couple of hundred additional drivers that they're seeing, and they need more drivers to help with the workload. And uh, Gavin McGarrigal was saying, you know, in terms of uh, getting a break during the day while some don't get a break, he says others are just sprinting to the restroom, sprinting back again, eating a sandwich in their seat. 
is not good enough, they say, and the drivers are really stressed out about the whole thing. And um, in terms of wages, too, um, I was taking a look at uh, online, just doing a bit of research here. Uh, the top driver uh, for the company here, Coast Mountain, tops out at 31.06 an hour. That's the latest information I could find. And uh, bus drivers in Edmonton top out at 36.09 an hour. And I know quite often they've... Uh, our local bus drivers have talked about the Alberta bus drivers earning yeah. more, so so there you go. So we'll see where it all yeah. ends, Simi. You know, I know. It's up in the air right now. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Sure. Okay, thank you for that, Janet. You're welcome, Simi. That is Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown, who's keeping a very close eye on the negotiations, still talking today. That is the good sign. I've been watching a lot of coverage this morning of the wildfire situation in California. And I tell you, it is a brutal one this time around. And the video that I'm sure is going to pop up in your feed today has to do with the horses that they are trying to rescue. And the one that I actually just retweeted to people who follow me, Simi Sarah 980, is the one about the horse that broke away from trying to be put into, uh, taken to safety essentially, and went back to get his family went back to get um, the the female horse and the foal that was along with them and then brought them all back, uh, you know, so they could get to safety. And that video is just, it's everywhere right now because it's just amazing. There's smoke everywhere. The ground is being burned. It's a very chaotic situation there. The big wind-driven wildfire that is burning northwest of Los Angeles has now grown to about 1,300 acres. Uh, the Ventura County Fire Department says that fire is threatening 6,500 homes. This is the one that just started, as a matter of fact, uh, just, you know, they said about 12 hours or so ago. Uh, this is between the cities of Simi Valley and Moore Park, and it's been spread by those strong Santa Ana winds. Flames have actually reached the top, the hilltop, right in front of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. So you'll see some very stark images of the library right there and the grounds burning kind of right next to it. But right now, a spokesperson says that no damage has occurred. That's a good thing. They've got helicopters and airplanes dropping water and fire retardant. There's 800 firefighters that are battling the flames on the ground. So we wanted to get an update on how bad the situation is there right now. So officers from the local fire department in Ventura County started a press conference about half an hour ago. So here's the latest from the fire chief there, Mark Lorenzen. Just after 6 a.m., we had a fire start at Easy Street, Madeira. Unfortunately, it was uh, about the worst time it could happen. 40 mile an hour sustained winds and uh, again fuels that were ripe and ready to carry fire. Fortunately for us and for the community we were prepared. Uh, we had significantly augmented resources. We had incredible robust quick response from our neighbors to the south with LA City and LA County and your firefighters throughout Southern California have now responded into Ventura County. They're actively engaged in protecting structures, uh, significant evacuations and the fire is still moving pretty quickly. Right now the fire size is about 1,300 acres. I do know we've had some outbuildings destroyed and we were just getting reports that we uh, potentially have one residential structure that is burning off of Tierra Rajada. Uh, unfortunately for us the winds are going to continue for probably the next 24 hours so we're going to be in a position where we still need to actively engage in the fire, keep, uh, keep our communities well informed and evacuating. My request to the public is do just this pay attention to your media outlets and social media and be ready and prepared to leave. And when we ask you to leave, please leave immediately. That is the fire chief, Mark Lorenzen. They're talking about a fire that started about six and a half hours ago, and that's how big it has already become and how much of a threat and danger it is. Uh, CBS News has more details from Simi Valley. 
Over about two and a half hours, those large flames continue to race further and further up these slopes. And firefighters were very concerned. At one point, as those fire, as the fire raced all the all the way around the perimeter of this museum, they told us we would have to remain up at the top because there is only one road leading in and out of this museum. So everyone stayed here at the top. Those uh, firefighters did tremendous job with their airdrops, really just keeping the flames uh, from jumping over kind of a barrier that has been built around this uh, museum where the foliage, the brush isn't as heavy. Uh, and that was very smart because it certainly did protect everything. Here's what we heard from the executive director earlier this morning. They're closer than I've ever seen flames get near the library before. It's a, it's a very, uh, it's a frightening thing, but, uh, but firefighters are real heroes here. And they were, they were, they were real heroes because uh, those flames were insane <laughs> to be, to be blunt. And those firefighting pilots also did tremendous work because their helicopters were being whipped around by the winds, which were so strong, uh, yet they continued to hit those targets uh, and to protect this museum behind us. Now, we are continuing to get some new smoke, some, some uh, new flames that are fanned up by these very strong winds. So this firefight, not over yet, but the extreme danger that we saw earlier, fortunately, has passed. Right now, firefighters, uh, again, just working on keeping these hot spots out. I think you get an idea of how intense the situation is right now. I mean, the, the, the pictures, the video that is coming out of theirs, we haven't seen a fire like this. We've heard these stories of these intense California wildfires, but we haven't seen one like this in quite some time. Meanwhile, KTLA reporter Lauren Leister is speaking with fire officers who are actually working on the ground in Jerupa Valley. These uh, engines that are stationed all along these neighborhoods, they're doing structure protection, I, I, I would imagine? Yeah, that's their primary job is structure defense, and they'll continue that until the need passes. Uh, we just heard an alert go off on everybody's cell phones. Okay, pull out your cell phone, Jeff. What are we learning? Jeff, Mike, how come I'm the only person that doesn't get them? Oh, here we go. Hillfire incident evacuation order west of Pyrite, east of Pedley, north of Mission. So there is a new evacuation order west of Pyrite, east of Pedley, north of Mission. This is for the Hill Fire. This is what we're showing you now. The winds are picking up. This is a very strong gust of wind. Uh, so some strong winds coming through here. That is certainly something that they're dealing with. We aren't seeing quite as many airdrops. Does that tell you anything, Jeff LaRusso? Uh, it could be a couple of things. Could be number one, that there's just not the need. Could also be the fact that uh, the turbulent winds right now are causing too much havoc. And we see some uh, firefighters, some crews on foot going up uh, the hill here. What do you what do you imagine they're going to be doing now? Uh, those are going to be our inmate firefighters. What they're going to do is they're going to go up there and they're going to attack the fire from the ground. They're going to try to remove any fuels that are in the area and basically cut down to bare minimum soil. That'll be their task. And there's a lot of work to be done there. As you can hear, the fire, uh, the 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 wind situation uh, is really picking up, and that is what's causing such huge problems there. Uh, so we'll keep you posted on how that goes. But the, the, some of the largest fires right now in that area north of Los Angeles are out of control, and they actually don't have any idea of how to contain them at this point. They're doing the best that they can, but the winds are just shifting them in every single direction. And you'll see the pictures as well today of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library that is currently under threat as well. Well, today is part of our leadership series. We're going to be talking about vaping. Uh, it's become a huge problem for youth just in the last couple of years. It's one of those things that you know came out of nowhere, and all of a sudden we're talking about it all the time because 
Uh, as many people say, it has become an epidemic. There are principals, administrators, teachers who talk about how it's just like virtually impossible to stop kids from doing this. It's happening inside schools. They need help. And meanwhile, politicians are debating what to do about it. However, there are people out there who are trying to, you know, take this fight on themselves, like a man named Errol Povice from Metro Vancouver. He has made his fight against tobacco and nicotine products his passion. Have a listen. They don't vape. And that, say these students, is unusual. It's kind of just a common thing everyone does now. It's just like pure pressure and everyone does it. Recent statistics suggest a 74% jump in youth vaping in just one year. There's this perception that vaping is just this harmless vapor. This has become a major health emergency south of the border where 126 people have died. We've seen a number of jurisdictions, including Washington State, take action. Vaping has become a very big business, as I understand it, like a giant business in a very short period of time. But we can't allow people to get sick and we can't have our youth be so affected. People are dying with vaping. Vaping. It seems like everybody is talking about the trend that is becoming a major health concern. Professor David Hammond of the University of Waterloo did a study involving 16 to 19-year-olds. He found that vaping increased by 74% in just one year from 2017 to 2018. At the same time, smoking cigarettes amongst youth in that same age group increased 45% in just one year. Errol Pova is trying to stop that trend. He's the president of Airspace Action on Smoking and Health, which is a volunteer-based anti-tobacco organization. One of my only childhood memories was riding in the back seat of the family car, and both my parents were smokers at that time. Uh, I was probably somewhere between the age of 5 and 12. Yeah, I'd see one or both of them getting out the cigarettes on the lighter, and I would take a deep breath. Just as, just as they were lighting the cigarette, I would take a deep breath and hold it. I, I wasn't so naive as to believe I could hold it for the entire cigarette, but... I was trying to delay the inhalation of smoke for as long as I could. Uh, Even at that young age, uh, I hated it and perhaps even sensed that it wasn't healthy. So as a kid, you tried to avoid smoking or, or cigarette smoke. And for many years, it seemed like so did other young people because we were seeing a declining trend in youth using tobacco and nicotine products. But now, with the popularity of vaping, that trend is reversing again. That's right. Kids who uh, wouldn't, uh, many, many kids who wouldn't even think about picking up a cigarette and and smoking are using uh, e-cigarettes and and other vaping products and getting, getting addicted to nicotine, much to the delight of a big tobacco and big nicotine. And the day's going to come when their e-cigarette's not going to be available, the battery's going to be dead, whatever, and, but cigarettes will be available. So they'll, they're starting to use those as, as a replacement. And the number of youth smoking, uh, which has been declining for decades, and uh, albeit plateaued uh, a long time ago, that, that, that rate of smoking is now increasing again, and it's, it's a tragedy. So what do you feel, in your expert opinion and through, and through your experience, can be done about e-cigarettes? Well, uh, 
I never thought to myself saying this, but we need to take big tobacco big nicotine at its word. They claim that one, uh, e-cigarettes are exclusively for adult smokers who want to switch to a less harmful product. And secondly, they claim that they don't want kids to vape. We, we've got a comprehensive plan to, uh, to make their objectives a reality. In lieu of a complete ban on e-cigarettes, which, which I must add, 40 countries around the world have already done that. Many states and other provinces in Canada are following that lead. In any case, in lieu of a complete ban, we are suggesting that e-cigarettes be made available by prescription only. That would achieve big tobacco, big nicotine's objective. Our idea about prescriptions for e-cigarettes includes gradually reducing the amount of nicotine in the e-cigarette over a period of perhaps six months until at the end of the day that the ex-smoker is is an ex-nicotine addict as well. They've been completely weaned off of the nicotine. For people to just simply switch to another nicotine delivery device, in this case e-cigarettes, uh, isn't terribly helpful. And, uh, and of course, we're calling for a complete ban on the marketing and advertising of e-cigarettes as well, and the elimination of, uh, if not all, flavors, uh, certainly the vast, vast majority of them. There, there should only be, I, I suggest there should be only one or two flavors of e-cigarettes available to make them somewhat palatable to those smokers who want to quit smoking. Errol is so passionate about this cause, he said that you can even call him on his phone if you want to talk more about it. Our website is www.airspace.bc.ca. Airspace is all one word, A-I-R-S-P-A-C-E. Or people can call me directly or email me at errolp at hotmail.com or my number is 778-899-4832. For the CKNW Leadership Series, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Global News has learned that the BC government is getting ready to introduce permanent daylight saving time legislation tomorrow. If passed, that means that we could have permanent daylight saving time as early as 2020. That would mean no more time change back and forth. And remember, this is all part of that public consultation process where more than 93% of the British Columbians who had filled out uh, that public consultation form called for getting rid of that time change. Let's find out more about this now. How is this going to work? It's very timely, too, considering that the time change of us going back an hour is this weekend. Richard Zussman joins us now, our Global News online legislative reporter. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. Okay, so what did you find out? It's not often you get to change time, but that's what Premier John Horgan (laughs) is trying to do. So the legislation will be introduced tomorrow morning. This, as you mentioned, is something that British Columbians have been calling for. It was the most popular public consultation in British Columbia's history. More than 93% of people said they wanted to see permanent, permanent daylight saving time. In the legislation, it will outline a new time zone, called Pacific Time. It will also have a caveat in the legislation that will preclude those who live in the 
Peace region and the Kootenays who are on mountain time from doing this as well. The important thing in all of this is the timing and when this will actually affect our clock. So as everyone knows, we are falling back an hour early Sunday morning. That will not change. This legislation will open the door for the change in 2020. And if you've been following this story, you're now asking yourself, well, what about the Pacific U.S. states? Yes. Premier Horgan has long said he wants B.C. to be in lockstep with those states. But there's some struggles happening down there in terms of uh, how they're moving forward. At one point, Washington, California, Oregon all had legislation in place uh, to go to permanent daylight saving time. What they need is for the Congress, which is now tied up in impeachment hearings and other things, to approve the legislation. That could take time and potentially could take longer than a year. The other factor here, as well as California, has backed away from its legislation, and it's now looking at permanent standard time. So it may be hard to bring California along as well. But the BC government acknowledges the public wants this. The legislation is in place to enable it. And I think Premier Horgan would have a very hard time not ensuring that the seasonal time changes are gone by November of 2020. Now, see, I'm all for what California is thinking about because I seem to remember that when our public consultation was done, Richard, we weren't given that option. It was about, do you want to stay on daylight saving time? It didn't ask you, or would you rather stay on standard time? Right. And I think we've heard from experts, and we'll have an interview on the news hour tonight uh, with an expert in sleep who says that there are concerns around permanent daylight saving time because it pushes our internal clock back an hour because it's darker in the morning and lighter in the evening. And because of our work schedules and our drop-off schedules, that could have a profound impact on the way people operate. So there are still going to be some concerns, but it was overwhelming, Simi, when people were asked about permanent daylight saving time, that's what they chose. I know it's a little bit, uh, the survey was leading people down that path. Yes. But it was still an overwhelming change that people want to remain on, on one, one time. time for the entire year. Right. That's what I that's what I take away from that too, is that regardless of which one, it is that people have said they don't want to make this time change anymore. Right. And you know, it's one of those things, David Eby, the attorney general, will be presenting the legislation. Uh, he just spoke to us very briefly because there's not a lot they can say officially around the legislation because it doesn't come out until tomorrow. But you know, we hear from parents whose kids don't know that they're supposed to sleep in an extra hour or wake up an extra yeah. hour and what <laughs> oh, that means yes. for the the rhythms of getting your kids to school. Simi, you and I both know that well. Yes. Uh, also, we've heard lots about people with pets. You know, pets don't know it's daylight saving time and they're supposed to have an extra hour of sleep. So there are parts of this where people just don't understand. And, and daylight saving time and seasonal time changes date back to before the world wars. And there were conversations around efficiencies and around giving light to farmers in the morning. You know, we have something called electricity now that we didn't have ah. when this came into effect. And so this is one of those antiquated rituals that we have that BC is tackling. Saskatchewan's already done it. Arizona's already done it. Lots of states in the U.S. are looking at doing it. Florida is another big one. So I think BC is sort of falling in lockstep here. Tara Holmes 
from Kamloops is one of the people who've been pushing the hardest on this. She has a petition that's been circulating for years. She just says BC should go at it alone. We should be leaders. If we do it, then she's convinced other jurisdictions along the coast will follow. Now, does this mean that it's a done deal? So they're going to introduce this legislation tomorrow. That means it is happening. Or does this put the legal mechanism in place to allow it to happen? So it's enabling legislation. So if the legislation passes, which we expect it will, uh, it then gives BC the tool to switch the clock whenever it wants. And so, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean they will use that legislation. And that's one of the things that We'll hear from Premier John Horgan tomorrow about this. Uh, He will no doubt talk about the importance of being in lockstep, but he will also open up the idea of BC going at it alone. And I think that's something that will need to be resolved over the next year. It's clever putting it in now, considering the province is giving itself the maximum amount of time to try to get the U.S. states involved. Premier Horgan has been speaking uh, to Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, about this a lot, as well as the governors of California and Oregon. Uh, They have been in communication with how we can all work on this together. Uh, It's it's one of those things, you know, obviously Premier Horgan has a lot of more important things to spend his time on, but he has said in the past, this is the one thing, Simi, that he has received more correspondence about than anything else. Else, more than money laundering, more than housing affordability. You know, those are clearly issues the government's tackling that are more significant to people's lives. But this is one of those things that obviously matters just a little bit twice a year to British Columbia. And I remember that. That's what I was going to bring up is that I remember at the beginning of when they took office, became informed government, that I remember he was asked about this and he kind of poo-pooed it. And he kind of went, yeah, this isn't really a priority. Then they went and did the public consultation and it came back with these overwhelming numbers. And then they went, oh, I guess maybe people really want to do this. So it's been a change for the government as well. Yeah, you're missing one step there, Sammy. He poo-pooed it and then immediately was (laughs) um, overwhelmed (laughs) with letters from people. He said like (laughs) every day they would get hundreds of letters from people across the province who say, well, we care about this. And then they launched the public consultation. Then the response was overwhelming. You know, the 93% number stands out. When people were asked if they want to be in lockstep with the Pacific states, 55% said they did, 45% said they didn't. Uh, you know, the, the change came because of public feedback. Yes. And again, it's not the most important issue John Horgan will deal with as premier, but it's nice to see that a premier responds to something that's driven by the public, yeah. takes the public's opinion to heart, puts in place legislation, you know, is there a chance we don't see this next year? Maybe, but I, I can't believe the government would not go ahead with it considering how overwhelming the public support has been. It certainly has been. All right, Richard, thank you. Thanks, Amy. That is Richard Desmond, our Global News online legislative reporter, breaking the story this hour. We've been talking today about that viral video that has been making the rounds about the racist rant in Burnaby. It was at a shopper's drug mart there on Kingsway. It had been posted to social media about a day and a half ago or so. Now, the Facebook user who asked not to be identified says that he didn't see how the incident started, but that he thinks it began with a dispute over the handling of a return or an exchange or the price of a product or something like that. Uh, he posted the full video on globalnews.ca so you can see see the whole thing there. It's about a minute and a half or so. Uh, but here's a brief excerpt of how it sounds. Shut up. Speaking in Chinese in front of me. Shut up. You're rude. Speak English in Canada. Rude as fuck. Shut up. You're rude. You are rude. Go somewhere else. Okay. Go. Yeah. You want a manager to talk to me? You bring your manager here. You get up. If you want to talk to me, you bring your manager here, you idiot. Or go speak Chinese with your other staff and talk to me somewhere else. Get him somewhere else. 
Just brutal, right? Like just absolutely brutal. Now, if she wanted to make the point of speak English in front of customers, then there's a very polite way to say that. Uh, excuse me, I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. Could you please speak English? Uh, yeah, I would like to talk to a manager, please. There's a lot of different ways to do this. That the extreme wrong way. But the person who also recorded that felt that he couldn't, he didn't want to get involved because he was also of Asian descent, didn't want, he was, wasn't sure what would happen, whether the person would turn on them or, or, or what is it. So it got us talking today about getting involved when you see somebody uh, being verbally abused. This has happened to a lot of people. We had so many examples earlier when we were discussing this. And many people also, though, freeze. They're not sure. Should I do this? Should I step in? Like, what if something violent happens? Maybe I should just stay out of it. There's uncertainty around that. We wanted to talk about that today. Joining us now is Lisa Dixon-Wells, the founder of Dare to Care, which is a bullying prevention organization. Lisa, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. Is this something that you've discussed with people before about whether or not, like, should you step in? Like, what should you do? All the time. All the time. We uh, work predominantly in schools and with amateur sports, but that also means we work with the adults in those communities, teachers, coaches, and parents. And, uh, you know, we're constantly saying we're asking our kids to step in and stand up for others in schools, but as adults, we need to be doing far more of that and modeling how to do it without uh, escalating the situation. I think that is the key, right? A lot of people don't know what is the right way to approach a situation like that. Right. And, and when, uh, when you get angry and frustrated, uh, human nature is we start talking a lot, yapping, and it's very easy. The more words you use, the more likely you're going to be engaged or become engaged in an escalating situation. So what we always tell adults and, and kids is that if they witness something, they don't need to fix it. They're not in, in a position to fix it, but they need to acknowledge it with the fewer words possible. So just saying, hey, cut it out or stop it. And you say it twice and then your job is done. Um, you're either going to, it's either going to stop or it's not, but at least you've acknowledged it. And all studies point that 90% of time of the time when people intervene that way, uh, the bullying or disrespect stops within 10 seconds. Do you think, like, does the bully or the person who's having these tirades at that point, do they just not understand that this is in public, that other people can hear them? Because I think that's what a lot of people wonder too, is like, why would you do this in public? Oh, I think there's a bit of both. I mean, if it's truly a bullying situation and this is a, a woman who does this all the time, part of it is is the, the power she feels in uh, feeling uh, intimidating others. So it's it's become part of her personality style. And in other situations, you're just so upset and so angry. Uh, yeah, you're unaware of the people around you. It doesn't make it okay, but you're unaware of, of how you're coming across maybe because you're so uh, immersed in, in the emotion. Right. Why do you think sometimes, Lisa, that people are afraid to step in? Well, I think, unfortunately, we hear about it all the time where innocent bystanders step in and, and become injured or, or even worse. And what we're not hearing is the fact that that innocent bystander allowed themselves to become engaged in a power struggle with someone who is uh, not going to take no for an answer. And again, it escalates very, very quickly and gets out of control. So I I think control is the big part here for the person who is stepping in is to be controlled enough to just say it, hey, cut it out, 
know that the person's going to turn around and say something snotty like this is none of your business or get lost because they're trying to engage you in a power struggle. So you just say it again, stop it, and then walk away. Or in this case, walk away and then video it. Um, But you got to say something. Yeah, what do you think then about the fact that there's all these videos out there, but quite often in the case of these videos, nobody actually said anything? Yeah, well, and, and again, I, I I understand why people feel like they're doing something by, by videotaping, but, and if that's what you want to do, uh, first, at least use your words and say, hey, cut it out twice, and then if the person doesn't stop, then pull out your video camera if that's what you need to do, but uh, just shooting a video is doing nothing. Okay, is this something that we're learning slowly, you think, or has social media kind of exacerbated this issue? Oh, I think it's exasperated because, I mean, it's you see how quickly things go viral. Uh, before, we would just talk about, oh, did you see that person at, at the mall the other day uh, ranting out uh, one of the employees? We would talk about it, but now we're all witness to it. I, I wonder if, too, the recording of it makes us reluctant to step in as well, because then maybe that's all you're going to be on camera as well. Well, perhaps, but wouldn't you want to step in and be that person that actually is able to de-escalate it. And the, and the other part of it, too, is that, you know, and I, I don't want to um, minimize the potential threat in some situations that, you know, listen to your gut. If you feel like it's a den- dangerous situation, then uh, don't just video, go and get help, strength, strength in numbers. But 90% of the time that we witness things in malls and stores, at swimming pool, hockey, it, all it takes is a few quick words of uh, cut it out and honestly, that it will stop. All right. Well, Lisa, thanks so much for the discussion today. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. That's Lisa Dixon-Wells, founder of Dare to Care, a bullying prevention program.